you know, there's a, a tendency in churches when you have a service that falls on Father's Day or Mother's Day or doing something for Christmas Eve or any one of these kinds of holidays that tends to bring in people to the building that aren't typically there. There's a tendency for a lot of churches to do an easy message on those days, to be a little more friendly to just the average person who maybe isn't as familiar with the Bible. Um, I hope you guys have come to expect from me and will not take offense to the fact that uh, I don't operate that way, and I want us to be uh, just as meaty today as we always are. And so uh, feel free to follow along as we get into God's Word today. I hope you have your Bibles. If you do, you can turn to Psalm 68. We'll be there in a minute. But before that, there's something I wanted to talk about. Something that's actually kind of been eating me up this entire week. If you recognize this, this is the prayer cards that we we have um, that we ask you to fill out, put them in the offering plate when the ushers go by. And Michelle brought me this card on Monday. I'm not going to read it to you. It's very personal. It's uh, anonymous. They didn't put their name on it. And it's full of a lot of pain. I don't know who wrote it. I'm not going to ask you to stand up or raise your hand. I hope you're here today. Because I am going to read the first sentence. And it says this. No one ever reads these. So what good does this do? I read them. And I'm sorry, whoever you are, that you feel that way. I'm not mad at you. I'm not offended. If anything, I'm heartbroken that you haven't experienced that love from us. And so I'm going to do something now, and then we're going to move on. Something that I've actually done since I first stepped into ministry over a decade ago. Every time I was in a new uh, youth group, I would always do this for the youth. I I don't know why I didn't do it for everyone here, and I regret that, but I'm going to do it this morning. That's my cell phone number. It was my personal cell phone number. I'm going to leave it up there for a minute. I get more calls from Scam Likely than I get from the people I actually personally know. (laughs) So I don't really care that this is out here everywhere. So if you want to take a picture of it, take a picture. If you want to write it down, write it down. I'm always available. Always. A text, a phone call. If you need one of the pastors, if you need to talk to someone, please do not hesitate. That That is my cell phone number. Right here. Now, when I'm preaching, my phone goes in airplane mode, so don't try and call me now. I, uh, had, uh, I learned that the hard way. My uh, church I was at a, a few years ago, I was preaching one Sunday morning, and the worship pastor was a really good friend of mine. His name's Jesse. And I was using my phone for the sermon notes. And he's sitting in the back of the church, and he just starts calling me because he knows I'm using my phone. And so the first time it happens, and I look and I see Jesse and, you know, his last name pop up, and, and I just look up and I make immediate eye contact with him. 
and he just crosses his arms and shakes his head. <laughs> and no one else knows what's going on. It was on vibrate, so no one like heard the phone going off. So I hang up the call and just, you know, well, that's Jesse being Jesse. And uh, move on. Two minutes later, he calls me again. <laughs> and he calls me like four times before eventually I hit airplane mode and leave it in airplane mode for the rest of the sermon. Because if, if I had an iPhone and, and it takes over your whole screen when you get a call. So like my notes just disappeared for 30 seconds at a time, like five times. And <laughs> afterwards, he could not contain his laughter. And he kept, uh, uh, he just kept saying, it's like, well, never going to do that again, are you, John? <laughs> No, sir. No, sir. The trauma once was enough. <laughs> oh, man. Goodness. Well, this morning, I have the distinct privilege of being able to talk to all of you about how our God is a father of the fatherless, a father to the fatherless, however you want to say it. He is a father. And my hope is that by the end of our time together, you are going to be able to hear from me and repeat yourself that it's not just God the Father, that it's God my Father. It's not just God the Father, but it's God my Father. His name, the Hebrew transliteration there is um, Abi Yathom. Abi Yathom. There's a V, not a B, but it's Hebrew, so that's what they do. There's an I, which we completely ignore. And the, the T-O, usually you'd think that's a, that's a T sound. So, you know, you might be trying to read that as Avi Yetamim, like I did. And then found out afterwards that I was, I was wrong. So I want to save you guys the embarrassment that I experienced so that you can know how to pronounce that. For all of those really cool, like, Bible trivia parties that all of you go to, uh, you can impress your friends uh, all right, so I said uh, to turn to Psalm 68, and that is where we're going to start today, because that is where this name of God comes from. Right here, Psalm 68, 4 through 6. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song for him who rides through the deserts, whose name is the Lord, and exult before him. A father to the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. It's God in his holy habitation. I want you to really look at two points here. Father to the fatherless and judge for the widows. When we hear judge for the widows, you might be thinking that judge, judgment, condemnation, but what this is, is more accurately saying is that he is an advocate for the widows. And we say fatherless, but a, a word you might be more familiar with is orphan. We know all throughout scripture how desperately God cares for the orphan and the widow and that we're commanded to do the same. And so uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm not a father. I do not have kids. Hannah and I have been married in a couple days, actually, this week. We celebrate our ninth wedding anniversary. I'm so excited. Thank you. Thank you. If the Myers were here, they'd tell you, oh, that's nothing. We've been married like 56 years. Um, we'll get there, Lord willing. But uh, I, don't, I don't have any kids. And I'm okay with that. 
I am okay with that. I have had the opportunity over the last 14, 15 years uh, to spiritually disciple a lot of people, uh, to pour into them, uh, not as their father, but, you know, their godfather, if you will. Not the godfather. (laughs) No horses in anyone's bed. But I've had the opportunity to walk with people in their relationship with God to, to help kind of steer them on the straight and narrow. And so this morning, I didn't want to just talk about what it means to be a dad in the 21st century or in the post-COVID world or anything like that. No. What I wanted to talk about are God's expressions of fatherhood. Right there. God's expressions of fatherhood. There's a lot of them, okay? Like a lot. We don't have hours. I have minutes. So we're going to talk about three. The first one, he disciplines. Discipline is not a fun word. And it's actually at this point that I need to make an apology to all of you. This is sincere. A few months ago in April, I preached on God the Father. And I said something that I think was easily misinterpreted. And I want to own that and correct it right here in front of everyone. I said that when Jesus died on the cross, he was not saving us from the Father, but he was saving us from ourselves. What I was trying to explain is that God sent Jesus himself. He was the, 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 the vessel through which we find salvation. It was because God the Father sent God the Son. But the reality is that could be easily misinterpreted, and I should be more careful with the words that I use. Because the reality is God is a God of wrath. He is a God of truth and righteousness. He is a vengeful God. I preached on at the beginning of the year that he is a jealous God. And so I just wanted to recant that a little bit and let you know that he is a God of wrath. But Paul David Tripp, one of my favorite uh, current Christian authors and, and theologians, he wrote a book that I recommend to anyone who goes into ministry called Dangerous Calling. And basically the gist of the book is if you don't genuinely believe that God has called you to ministry, don't do it. It's not easy. It's extremely difficult. It's extremely hard. When you work in customer service at Walmart, you have to deal with the general public. When you are a pastor, you have to deal with the general public. But I'm not customer service at Walmart. I can't cop an attitude with people. (laughs) I I can't just have security escort them out because they don't like something I said. I have to, like, own it and and sit there. And so uh, it can be uh, difficult. And so this book was was very formative for me. It was uh, fantastic. So I highly recommend it. Um, So we're going to talk about a quote of his. Before we do, I want to read this proverb to you. Uh, Chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. And do not resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those he loves. And it got cut off a little bit, but the continuation of that is, as a father disciplines a son in whom he delights. 
That's the, that's the other half of that. I'm not sure where it went. He disciplines those he loves as a father disciplines a son in whom he delights. And, and here is what Paul David Tripp had to say about that. Christ's sacrifice satisfied the father's anger so that as his child, you will receive his discipline, but need not fear his wrath. And that is such a beautiful distinction. His discipline still comes. His correction still comes. But we don't have to worry about his wrath. The second point I want to make is that he calls us to himself. I'm going to share a very personal story with you right now. It's not my story, although I have permission to share it. There's a guy that I know late 60s, early 70s. And he has a son who for decades was an addict. For decades. And when I got to know this uh, person, this father, at the, the job I worked before I came here, we'd have lunch every once in a while, and I would ask him, how's your son doing? And one year, this was like 2016, and one year... Uh, we were having this conversation. I asked him, how's your son doing? And he said, oh, well, you know, struggling. Still an addict. Year after year, that was the answer. Until one time I was meeting with him and I asked him, you know, how's your son doing? And he's like, oh, have I got a story for you? I was like, do tell. And he said, well, you know, every year we host an intervention for my son. Every year. And I was like, you do this, like, annually? Like, Annually? And he said, yeah, it's on the calendar. He knows it's coming, and he shows up anyway, year after year after year. And he said, you know, every single time it starts, uh, I just break down crying. Before I can even say a word, I start crying. And I beg and I plead with him to get clean, to get some help. And every year, he would say no, no. No, 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 no. Until one year, I get to the house. We're ready to stage the intervention. We know that his son is, is on the way. And he was talking with his daughter, this son's younger sister, and she said, Dad, why are we doing this? We've done this like 10 times, and it's never done any good. And he said, I'm, I'm not going to stop trying. I'm not going to stop trying. And so that year they, they meet. The son comes in. He breaks down. He's begging and pleading with him, get help. Please let us help you. Let us do something. And in the middle of that begging and pleading, his son cuts him off and says, Dad, stop. And he's expecting the son to just say no and be frustrated and, and leave. But no, he said, okay get help. And his dad, this is what he said. Okay, great. Grab your bags. We're going to the airport. And his son was like, what? And his dad said, I've got a private jet ready to take you. I've got you booked in rehab in New Mexico already, and we're going to go there right now. And we're going to get you checked in. And he told me this, and I was like, I was a little dumbfounded. I was like, did you really have a private jet, like, ready? And you know what he said? 
I had a private jet ready every year. I booked him in rehab every year, hoping that this was the year that he would do it. Because when you're a dad, you never stop trying. You never give up. You never throw in the towel. You keep trying. And that kid's been clean for about three years now. Hannah showed me a video yesterday. It was on TikTok. Good things can come off of TikTok. And uh, she didn't, at the time, I don't typically run my whole sermon by her, so uh, she knows that I'm talking about father of the fatherless, but she didn't know where it was going to go. And she sends me this video, and it was a perfect uh, illustration that I, for me to use, and I was so grateful. Uh, and rather than trying to figure out the logistics of getting a TikTok video up there, I'm just going to tell you what this person said. And he was sharing that in the animal kingdom, there's all these animals that when they're born, they already have the skills and abilities necessary for survival. Think about a gazelle, right? There's one right there. There's two, actually. Did you know that within minutes of being born, they can stand? Within an hour, they can run? And by the end of their first day of life, they can run as fast as an adult? Yeah, it's crazy, all right? Or in a similar vein, you have right here this blue wildebeest. Basically the exact same story. They're born able to stand, and they can run that very same day. Humans, on the other hand, <laughs> uh, it's like a year before we can stand, and, and it's, it's even longer before we're running and not immediately tripping over a hard floor. So what did God give us? He gave us parents. And how does a baby let a parent know that they need something. They cry. God, in his infinite wisdom, gave us the most important thing we could ever have from the moment we're born, we have the ability to ask for help. Because we cannot live this life in isolation. We cannot live this life alone. God calls us to himself because he knows how desperately we need him. We can't do this on our own. We have this passage here in John chapter 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. God calls us. He calls us to him. And so I started to think about what those calls are like. What does it look like for us to call to God for help? And the most common expression of that that we think of is prayer. And so this last week, I spent so much time reading about prayer in God's word, but also in the many theologians and inspired authors that God has uh, given wisdom to, to share with us. And I want to share with you real quickly uh, a few quotes that I think 
really put into perspective the power of calling on God. The first is from Corey Ten Boom. Any concern too small to be turned into prayer is too small to be made into a burden that we carry. Let me flip that around. If it is enough of a problem that you're worried about it or it gives you anxiety or you're nervous, it's enough of a problem for you to take to God. He cares about you. When a baby's crying and needs something, the father, the mother, they don't ignore the child if they're good parents. <laughs> they figure out what that kid needs and they provide for him, right? Now, obviously, sometimes kids are just fussy and sometimes we're just fussy, which I think is why this is such a good quote because, you know, are we burdened by something? Take it to God. Are we just fussy? Get over it. <laughs> I can say that as someone who wrestled with depression. I can tell you to get over it. I think it's, I'm, I'm allowed. Um, another one. <clears throat> uh, whoop, no, hold on. Sorry. A Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of its members for one another or it collapses. I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble he causes me. His face that hitherto may have been strange and intolerable to me is transformed, and all of these slides have been cut off. So I apologize deeply. I'm going to pull up the quote. I have them on my phone. For such a time as this, just in case, I am prepared. So this quote is from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a general in the faith, someone that I look up to greatly, is transformed in intercession... Uh, into the countenance of a brother for whom Christ died, the face of a forgiven sinner. Someone who is intolerable to me is transformed into someone that I can call my brother and my sister when I pray for them. And so in, in the context of living in a Christian community, we need to be interceding for each other, praying for each other, lifting each other up. Because as we do that, people become a little less annoying to us because we see Christ in them. That's not the, uh, the last quote. I've got a, another one here. This one is uh, a really good one. <laughs> I love this. This is R.C. Sproul. And he says uh, this, Prayer does change things, all kinds of things. But the most important thing it changes is us, as we engage in this communion with God more deeply and come to know the one with whom we are speaking more intimately, that growing knowledge of God reveals to us all the more the slides that have been taken over by Satan <laughs> reveals to us all the more brilliantly uh, how desperately our need is to change in conformity to him. Prayer changes us profoundly. I, I pray that prayer changes these slides profoundly right now. I've got another quote. This one is my favorite. It's also from one of my favorite theologians who recently passed away and is staring face to face into the eyes of his creator. His name is Tim Keller. He said this, the only person 
who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. The only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. God wants to hear from us. When I was preparing for this sermon, I asked my dad. If you don't know, when my mom passed away in 2014, about a year later, um, Hannah and I moved him in with us. Uh, He's on a fixed disability income, and it was uh, with inflation, it's just too expensive for him to live on his own. And so since 2015, uh, my dad has lived with us. And so I asked him, last week I met with him, and I asked him a whole bunch of questions about fatherhood, because again, not a father. And one of the questions I asked him is, what's the hardest thing about being a dad? What is, what is the thing that, that is the hardest for you to endure? Now, if I asked all the men in this room that are fathers, you probably will have some different answers, but I think that his answer would be a resounding bell for many of you. He said the hardest thing was watching his kids suffer and them not coming to him about it. To see them in pain, to see them desperately needing guidance or wisdom or or something and just not turning to him. Prayer is how we turn to God. How desperately does he want to hear from us If we're happy, pray. If we're sad, pray. If we're going through it, pray. Talk to God. He desperately wants to hear from us. The third point, he calls us to love others. He calls us to love others. There's another... uh, quote here from Paul David Tripp. I don't have a slide for it, but that's probably a good thing at this point. (laughs) It's also from Paul David Tripp. He uh, gave this message years ago on Father's Day, and it has always stuck with me. This particular quote, his dad was not a Christian, and so his dad uh, taught him a lot of skills, but never really taught him how to follow God. And he said that he he learned this lesson much later in life, and it's one he's tried to impart on his kids. And he says he wishes that he had heard this from his dad growing up. Son, you're going to be leaving this home. You're going to be building relationships, and the greatest danger to those relationships is you. There are things inside of you that God desires to help you with, that God sent his son to rescue you from, and the more you face those, the more you'll become a person of love. And the more you become a person of love, the more you can live a life of blessing other people. This next bit's a little silly. I hope you guys are ready. If you're married, like I am, you, you got to understand God is your father. He's also your father-in-law. <laughs> it sounds weird, I know. But think about it. God cares deeply for my wife. 
He loves her just as much as he loves me. God is my father. God is also her father. And unlike her biological father, God sees her 24-7. He sees the way I treat her 24-7. He he sees the the ways that that I lead her or fail to lead her 24-7. So uh, this is weird, I know, but... It's kind of neat. Yeah, it's cool. Thank you, Carl. It is cool. God is not just our father. He's also our father-in-law. One of the greatest stories in scripture about fatherhood is found in Luke chapter 15. And if you want to turn there, feel free. We're going to be starting in verse 11. And this is uh, sort of the, the so what of the whole message that I want to leave you guys with. So you can enjoy food and car show stuff. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus had just been caught, if you will, by Pharisees at a dinner party that was full of sinners. There were prostitutes and drunkards and people doing drugs. And and there Jesus was in the midst of all of them. And the Pharisees really did not like that. And so they began to question him. And he had a pretty great response. The first thing he does is share the parable of the lost sheep. You know, if you have 100 sheep and, you know, 99 of them are following you, but one goes off, what shepherd would not leave the 99 and go chase after the one? Immediately after that, without them getting a word in edgewise, he jumps to the lost coin. And he talks about how a woman, if she has 10 coins of silver and loses one, won't she immediately light a lamp, search for that coin? When she finds it, throw a party with her friends and celebrate that she got that coin. And then in verse 11, we get to the prodigal son. One of my favorite stories that Jesus ever told. This is also the only time in the entirety of the gospel where Jesus gives three parables in a row to drive one singular point home. It's the only time. And so when he does that, when he repeats himself, we should pay really close attention to what he says. The prodigal son, verse 11, and he said, Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between his sons. I want you to understand that what he basically said is you're dead to me. I want my inheritance now and I'm leaving. How painful that must have been. But the father divided his wealth between them. Verse 13, and not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. A distant country. He didn't just leave town. He wanted to get as far away from his father as he could. And in verse 14, now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the country, and he began to be impoverished. I'm going to put this picture up here. This is the last painting that Rembrandt ever painted. It's the prodigal son, specifically. It's not just, oh, that looks like the prodigal son. No, it, it is. That's what he painted. And so you see on the left-hand side there, I can actually show you a little bit better if I do this. 
Uh, I got a little laser pointer. Uh, so this, this is the father. This is the prodigal son. This is the brother. Down here, there's a person that's kind of watching disinterested. Up here is someone who's very curious, and you can't really tell because of the lighting, but there's actually a third person back in this area. So there's six people in this photo. And as we finish reading this story, I want you to ask yourself which one of these people you are. So, when he spent everything, verse 14, a severe famine occurred in that country. He began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. A Jew working with pigs. He needed something. So he did that which was not clean, that which was disgusting to his culture because he was desperate. Verse 16, he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating and no one was giving anything to him. In verse 17, but when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up, go to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. The kid's already rehearsing his speech because he's thinking that when he gets home, his dad's going to demand an explanation. And it's a long journey. Remember, he went to a distant land, and he's walking because he doesn't have any money. He can't rent a carriage, a horse, anything, camel. So he's walking all the way home, and I think he's probably repeating these words in his head over and over and over again. He doesn't even want to be the father's son again. He doesn't think he can. He's going to settle to just be a slave to his father. Most of you know this story, so you know what is about to happen Verse 20, he got up, he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. His father saw him when he was still a long way off. How do you see someone when they're a long way off? You're looking for him. He never gave up. I imagine he probably every day was sitting on that porch outside of his house. Looking at the road, his wife would be like, what are you doing, Dale? I'm just waiting. Today might be the day. And this time today was the day. And here we go. Uh, let's see. He uh, no longer worried because of your son. Make me your, one of your hired men. Uh, down to verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. And in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So he's already in the middle of the speech, right? I am not worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, listen, he didn't even get a chance to finish the speech he had prepared. He didn't get to the point where he said, make me a slave. He only got like halfway through his speech. And his dad interrupts him and says to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. Who do you think would have the best robe in his house? The father, his own robe. Bring out the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet. Slaves did not get shoes. 
and bring the fattened calf, the one reserved for feasts. Kill it, let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. And now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come, your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But the brother became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. And he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, notice how he distances himself from his own brother. He doesn't say when my brother came back home. He says when your son came, who had devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Both of these sons were using their dad for their own gain. The brother, believe it or not, he used strict obedience to the rules of the father as a way to secure power and authority in his community. Does that sound like someone else, maybe the Pharisees? that used their strict obedience to the laws of God to wield authority over people. The parable of the prodigal son, it tells us that, that God is always waiting. He's always watching for us to come home. And back in verse 20, my favorite part of this entire story is how when the son was spotted, the father ran to him. Some of you may not know, and this might blow your mind, that in that day, a Jewish adult male would never run in public. It was considered childish behavior. As a matter of fact, he definitely wouldn't have run to his son who dishonored him. Because in Deuteronomy, it says that if a son does that, you're supposed to kill him. So if he had done to his son what the law said, They'd be having a funeral, not a feast. Jesus came because the Father desperately wanted us back. And because of Jesus, we don't have to have funerals. We have celebrations. Because we know that we know that we know that our Father loves us and that he has called us to love other people. Are you the prodigal son? If you are, then to you, I would say it's time to come home. Maybe you're the brother, and you're having a hard time accepting the prodigal son. And to you, I would say, remember yourself, your own sins, your own mistakes. I know that I'm in a bad place when someone else's sin bothers me more than my own. Remove the plank from your own eye before you remove the speck in your brother's. 
And so this painting that Rembrandt painted, uh, 30 years before this painting, he painted another depiction of the prodigal son, only in that one, uh, you see this, this son with a shaved head. In the picture that he did 30 years prior, he had long flowing hair and he was wearing all these regal clothes and it was a self-portrait. Rembrandt put himself as the prodigal son. What's really interesting, he he did a lot of self-portraits. We know what he looked like so we know who he is in this picture. He's not the prodigal son in this picture. He's the dad. Because when the prodigal son comes home, they grow. Their own recognition of their own failings and shortcomings enables them to share that grace with other people. Former prodigal sons make the best gracious fathers. So if you're a dad here today, remember all the things that you did wrong. (laughs) Don't beat yourself up over them, but don't beat your kids up either. Remember, because of Christ, we experience God's discipline, but not his wrath. And the last point, loved I am, love I will. If I could summarize everything I've said here today, it would be that statement. We experience God's love, we experience his grace and we share it with other people. The highest calling, one that we're all called to in every facet of your life, in every occupation, in all things, remember that you have been loved with a powerful love and love others. Experience that grace that God has for you and then share that grace with other people. Once you taste grace, you become the grace-giving father. That is how grace gets to people. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, we're a room full of people that are messy, that make mistakes, that miss it, or We're people that at times haven't led well, at other times made a fool of ourselves. In some sense, Lord, we're all prodigal sons. So Lord, I pray that you would run out to us, that you would wrap us in your arms, that you would welcome us as your own. Lord, help us to welcome others. Help us not hoard your grace, but to freely give it. Let this church be known as a church that loves unconditionally. Let this be a church where we mean it when we say, come as you are. Lord, help us not to demand so much from people. to give them grace after grace after grace. Lord, I pray for anyone in here right now who feels in some way that they've missed it. Lord, encourage them. Be a father to them. 
Lord, to, to those who, who don't have a healthy relationship with their father. Be their father. Help them experience that this morning. Lord, we give ourselves to you. And we trust you. You are a good father. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.